Welcome to Crossview Radio, a weekly podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. Welcome back. We are uh, having a discussion on marriage. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to last week's podcast, I encourage you to go uh, and listen to that in order to get caught up uh, with where we're at. And uh, we're going to um, uh, begin, or actually we began last time, by defining the meaning of marriage. And one of the ways that um, is often helpful in our definition of things is to uh, define things by what they are not. And so we looked at multiple distortions, uh, multiple perversions of marriage in our culture today. And I think it's helpful to just see, um, especially compare Scripture to where our culture is at and say this is uh, what marriage is, and then this is also what marriage is not. Uh, But there was a question that was raised that I'd like to address today, and uh, I'd like to kind of start off with answering that uh, question briefly and then uh, hopefully spend the rest of the time, um, again, just continuing this idea of what biblical marriage does uh, look like. But uh, the question was, uh, how do we deal with um, uh, polygamy and even incestuous relationships that we see in the Bible? Um, we look at some of the, um, in the Old Testament, uh, some of the, the, the Jewish patriarchs, and we do see, in particular, this um, pattern of polygamy. And so last time, we really defined uh, biblical marriage as between a man and a woman. So how do we take a look at uh, that in light, of, uh, in light of Scripture? And the answer to that question comes down to the difference between uh, description and a prescription. Uh, one of the things that we have to recognize about the Bible is that it is brutally honest about the sins and flaws of its quote-unquote heroes. Is the Bible describing something, or is it prescribing? Is it giving us instruction and saying, go and do likewise? Uh, Just because something's contained in the Bible doesn't mean that it is endorsed by God. For instance, we have the story of David, his adultery with Bathsheba, uh, his consequent murder of her husband Uriah. But we recognize that this particular story is exposing to us the sins of David and his need and his need for a redeemer. Uh, Psalm fifty-one, for instance, is a, a report of the uh, of his repentance. Polygamy was the culture of the day. That doesn't make it right, and didn't make it right, but it made it common. Uh, we do have uh, one particular verse that specifically prohibits kings from uh, engaging. Uh, in polygamy, uh, Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Later on in the New Testament, we see the qualifications for an elder in Titus 1, 6, that he must be the husband of one wife. Um, you look at a couple of verses like these, and we see kings, we see elders, uh, and yet we may ask ourselves, why isn't there a specific prohibition for all people to abstain from polygamy? Well, uh, perhaps it isn't given to us in kind of the formulaic, thou shall not commit polygamy. But as we saw last week, it is given to us in the creation narrative when we read Genesis 2.24, therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Um, Jesus builds a theology of marriage off of this passage with regard to divorce, at least. Uh, And we can also note 
that we see one man and one woman. And so we can conclude, as we did last week, that polygamy was not part of the original intent of marriage. But the question still remains, if polygamy, and we could also say incest as well, if if they're not part of God's intent, why does God bless uh, perhaps maybe the people who have engaged in that or bless the descendants of those who engage in that? Uh, And when we ask that question, we're asking a question about the very uh, nature, the very fabric of the gospel itself. And we could actually uh, legitimately broaden that question uh, a little bit more uh, and ask this question, why does God bless anybody who sins? Um, Here's what we have to remember. Grace isn't given to us after we reform our lives. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. If we deserved grace, it wouldn't be grace. Grace is giving to us something which we don't deserve. It, it is the nature of God. It's the nature of the gospel. God grants to us uh, that which we don't deserve and redeems us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sin, which would include the sin of polygamy. The entire story of the Old Testament is full of these kinds of examples. Moses, for instance, was a murderer. Uh, God used him mightily in uh, the nation of, uh, of Israel. David was an adulterer and a murderer. God used him. In fact, God even called David a man after his own heart, of course, not endorsing or implying that those sins uh, were reflective of God, but uh, other areas in which David uh, loved God. Uh, Elijah was a coward. Samson was uh, a womanizer. Even in the New Testament, we see Paul himself was, uh, was a murderer. Uh, what these stories highlight for us is the reality that nobody is sinless, and we desperately need a Redeemer, which is Christ. And it's no less true uh, in the area of polygamy. And so when we look at the Old Testament and we say, well, what about all these people that did all these sins? Really, we need to look back and say, yeah, they did They did sin. Yes, we acknowledge that. That doesn't mean that God endorses the sin. That doesn't mean that God prescribes us to do sin. Uh in those kinds of ways or other ways. But what it does do is it exposes the fact, uh, it it actually, it highlights the gospel because it helps us to recognize that even the greatest heroes in the Old Testament, in the ultimate sense, are not heroes. And it points us to our need for Christ. The Old Testament, in a lot of ways, sets us up for our need for the gospel. Uh, We're told that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ in Galatians. And so what we recognize in the Old Testament is just this continual, uh, repetitive theme that we see that we just can't make it on our own as people. And so God uh, chooses to bless us in spite of our sin. He chooses to give us grace in spite of our sin. Uh, In fact, we read in Romans that it was while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't that he said, first get clean and then I'll give you grace. Uh, He said, I'll give you grace now. Uh, and that's really the nature of, of the gospel. So I hope that helps uh, to answer the question. Uh, but I do want to move on a little bit here and kind of get to the idea of maybe the uh, maybe the positive side of marriage. Um, now, assuming that we do have a correct definition of marriage, uh, we need to navigate it and understand uh, how it is to function and how we're to engage. And I really just kind of want to hit on maybe one main theme here today. Um, but as we as we look in this idea, you know, our culture... Uh, typically has a very selfish view of marriage. And admittedly, uh, us as Christians as well will oftentimes uh, be selfish in the area of marriage as well. Uh, In his book entitled Tying the Knot, Rob Green says the following, quote, If your definition of love is little more 
than the warm fuzzies, physical attraction, and the ability to have fun together, your relationship may demonstrate not how much you love the other person, but how much you each love yourself. What you have found is a person who helps you love you better than anyone else has, uh, end of quote. If I had to take an unofficial guess, I would think that 95% of marriages today are structured this way. This is one of the reasons why the divorce rate is so high. What happens is that when you go into marriage, you know, your enjoyment is an idol. I go into marriage wanting self-joy. Uh, and when you're dating, you know, it seems like your girlfriend or your boyfriend is is also worshiping that idol. So you might think, wow, you know, uh, my girlfriend makes me happy all the time, or she does this, or she does that, or whatever. My boyfriend, he does this, he does that. And all of a sudden, it, it, it appears as if they are also worshiping the idol that you're worshiping, which is your own satisfaction, your own uh, enjoyment. Uh, but after you get married, what you realize is that her idol all along was really not your happiness. Her idol was her happiness. And so what, what happens when you enter into marriage is oftentimes you, you realize uh, that, um, that both of you have been worshiping different idols, and you thought she was going to worship you, and, and you thought vice versa, and, and then all of a sudden, well, no, I'm worshiping me, I'm worshiping me, you're both worshiping each other, and when uh, conflict comes, uh, you both are looking out for your own interests, and all the warm fuzzies go away, and you realize that you both are miserable. Uh, when I do uh, premarital counseling, I have the couple watch uh, the YouTube video entitled The Story of Ian and Larissa. Uh, go ahead and uh, look that up on YouTube, uh, The Story of Ian and Larissa. I encourage you to uh, grab a box of tissues and uh, watch the video. It demonstrates what true sacrificial love looks like in, in a marriage. The gospel frees us from this false idol, this this idolatry of self. And ironically enough, marriage is one of the places where we learn this lesson. And that's really kind of what I want to get to today. And we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. Paul uh, has this long section defining, describing human marriage. And he concludes with these words, Ephesians 5.32, this mystery, and of course referring to marriage that he's talking about above, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage is a visual representation of the relationship that exists between Jesus and the church. John Piper comments on it in this way. He says, the mystery is this. God did not create the union of Christ and the church after the pattern of human marriage. Just the reverse. He created human marriage on the pattern of Christ's relation to the church. In other words, first comes uh, Christ and the church, second comes uh, marriage. And just like a drawing or a photograph represents something that is real, marriage represents the reality. And while we can enjoy drawings, we can enjoy photographs, we should enjoy that which they represent even more. When you scroll through, for example, your social media feed, uh, you're not really seeing anything that that's real. You're seeing representations of things that are real, um, things that um, you know represent uh, something else. You know, if you see uh, on social media your son or your daughter's photograph, you don't ultimately enjoy the photograph. You don't ultimately enjoy the the pixels on the uh, on the phone that is making up that image of your son or your daughter. 
Uh, you ultimately enjoy them. And that is uh, exactly what Peter Hubbard means when he says the following, quote, Perhaps the greatest battle of all, all of us face in looking at marriage is worshiping the picture more than the reality. That's what God had to save me from. When singles worship the picture instead of Christ himself, they feel incomplete and begin to despair because the picture becomes more important than the reality it represents. When divorcees worship the picture instead of God in all his sufficiency, they become cynical, empty, and needy when they lose what was never intended to satisfy them. When married people worship the picture instead of Jesus, they either repaint it with their own ideas or are plunged into hopelessness when the picture loses its original luster. Marriage is not an end in itself. It is intended to point us to the reality. It's like the photograph that we look at and we see the real thing behind it. We can and should enjoy marriage, but we should not idolize it. There is a difference. We should worship the reality, not the temporary picture. And so what does this mean in practice if this is uh, really the case? Uh, well, it has numerous implications, both inside and outside of marriage. Inside of the marriage, it means that our treatment of one another must reflect the way that Jesus treats the church. So divorce would be wrong because Jesus never divorces the church. Abuse is wrong because Jesus never abuses the church. Uh, and so on and so forth, we can go inside the marriage. My treatment of my spouse should be, I should be trying to copy the way that Jesus treats the church in that. Now, outside the marriage, there are implications as well. Marriage is to be essentially a walking billboard to point people to the gospel. Your marriage must function in that way. Uh, when those outside look at your marriage, they should be driven to the gospel. In an age where marriage is becoming increasingly cheap, uh, Christian marriages ought to shine that much brighter uh, before a lost world. When people see you, they ought to say, why don't I have a marriage like that? Why is, is that marriage look healthy and good? Uh, and, and probably uh, it should look a little bit odd to our culture in, in the sense that our culture doesn't know what a healthy marriage looks like uh, as well. And so it ought to be something that uh, points people to wanting to know more about that, and ultimately it should be the example of uh, Jesus and the church and therefore uh, bringing people to, uh, to the gospel. Uh, understand something about this. This increases the joy that's available in marriage. You know, sometimes someone may listen to something like this and, you know, trying to digest a biblical theology of marriage and you look at it and you say, wow, that you're really making marriage out to be so low and, and so boring. You know, you can't, what are you saying? You can't enjoy marriage? That's not at all what we're saying. We're saying, what, what is it that we worship? Are we worshiping Christ and, and really what marriage points to? Or are we worshiping the picture itself? And I would say that when you understand a biblical theology of marriage and when you practice your marriage that way and when you're walking in Christ and all these kinds of things, it actually enhances the joy that's available in marriage. Um, and actually, the same thing is true in every area of life. The more that we give our allegiance and worship to Christ, the more we can truly and genuinely enjoy his gifts. Uh, the moment that I idolize a gift from God, such as marriage or food or clothing or shelter— God takes that joy away from me. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 6, verses 1 through 2, he says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, 
and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. In other words, what Solomon is reminding us of is that we can have everything that the world says we need to be happy. We can have all the riches that the world can offer us. We can have all the, the stability. We can have all the, the acclaim and the social status that we want. We can have all those things but still be unhappy because God says, uh, I'm not going to turn the switch on, so to speak. I'm not going to flip that switch that actually allows you to enjoy it. You're going to be miserable in all of the things that you have. Our happiness comes not from our circumstances, but from our relationship with Christ. Happiness is a byproduct of having correct worship. And that's what this talk on marriage is about. It's really about having correct worship. What is marriage all about? You know, I used to think that it was some disconnected reality just tacked onto life, kind of meaningless, just, you know, oh, here, by the way, there's this thing called marriage that we do. Uh, But when we look at it from a biblical worldview, we realize that it is infused with meaning, and thus it cannot be whatever we want it to be. It must be what God says it must be. Marriage is inherently religious. It is inherently Christian, and that's the ultimate reason why it's attacked today. Marriage is not attacked ultimately because, you know, we don't like it, you know, we want to have an alternative form of love or whatever it might be. The, 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 The reason that we ultimately want to, our culture wants to attack marriage is because we don't like anything that comes from God in our fallen condition. And, and marriage comes from God, and so we want to attack that. You know, reality itself is under attack, and we, we have talked about that before with transgenderism and all those things. It's just the very simple realities of this is this way uh, is, is being attacked today, and it's because reality itself comes from God. Uh, we don't attack reality because it's inconvenient. We attack it because it's sourced and gone. And for those of us who are in Christ, we know that true happiness, including happiness in marriage, ultimately comes from God. And so for us, we need to run to him. He will satisfy us. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Orville YMCA to find out more about Crossview Church. Visit us online at crossvieworville.com.